Welcome to Deal With Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. I'm Joel Whipperforth, leading digital transformation. John, I'm excited for this new segment of the podcast here that you guys did last time when I wasn't here, and it's the true-false segment. We're going to do a little rapid fire here on true-false for in-season plant nutrition. Yeah, so I last time Kyle got to open the envelope, this time you get to open the envelope. Like, why can't I ever just open the envelope? Well, it's, you, a, it's a chain of command, and maybe they don't trust you to not pre-read the questions. I know that you like to prepare for things like this, John, and the likelihood is you would have been up all night preparing for this. Ready or not. All right, here we go. So this question comes in. uh, I'm planning to plant several different hybrids in a field. Uh, I should expect them all to have similar yield response to nitrogen since they're planted in a similar environment. True or false? For me, that would be a big false. For what we know about hybrids as far as response to nitrogen, you may have knocked it out and got all of them the same response to nitrogen, but I'd say the bulk of our research shows us that different hybrids respond to nitrogen differently to the capacity that I'm almost willing to walk out on a limb and say, hey, there's some hybrids that don't even need side dress and probably would limit N and still do fine in yield. Where there's other hybrids that they might be your high yielders, but if you don't give them nitrogen, it's going to fall out of bed pretty quick. Yeah, so I, you know, I may be hung up on the part where they said planning to plant several different hybrids in one field. Is this the succotash when you go from field to field that you know there's like a little bit of pink kernel left in with a little bit of blue kernel as you've got your crop planted to kelp seeds mixed in there? Is it that type of different hybrids? Well, so at first I was thinking multi-hybrid planter, and then I started thinking like down your road, hey, they just vacuumed out from a plot and started dumping it in boxes. But no, I think realistically, I mean, I get to see this on the field level all the time as you have four different hybrids across. A, a quarter section or something, and and that quarter's managed the same all the way through. Well, what we know is you probably got to block those hybrids up enough to say, if you had one or two days where you had to get side dress done and then had to start early, which one are you going to start on? And having a little bit of a block up or more of a plan than just trying to scatter hybrids across farms and do multi-checks is probably going to be where you need to focus a little bit of that. We actually have dialed in the field <clears throat> forecasting tool. We did another calibration on that this year, and we actually started to incorporate some of that response to nitrogen data into the field forecasting tool. Did you get a chance to see the calibration work on that? So I got to see a little bit of the calibration work, but the true calibration is going to come in the field when I get to use it. <laughs> well, that's exciting, though, to have a crop model that is hybrid specific by that hybrid's response score. So let's look at another true-false question, John. If I increase plant population, I should also reduce the amount of applied nitrogen so plants don't lodge. True-false. Can I get a reread on that one? If I increase plant population, I should also reduce the amount of applied nitrogen so plants don't lodge. So increase plant population, reduce applied nitrogen. Okay, so I was just making sure that you were reading that correctly, Joel, and that that I heard it right. And so... uh, For me, that would be a false because I would expect, hey, as you increase plant population, you need to make sure that you have the nutrients there to feed those higher populations. So for me, maybe depending upon your RTN score in that hybrid, you could increase population and reduce nitrogen. That could be a possibility, but really it's all about the fertility going in that. So not just even nitrogen. You got to think through phosphorus, potassium, your secondary micros, and managing through them as well. It's not just a nitrogen play there. But generally, you got more moles at the table, you got to have more food on the table. 
So, Joel, nitrogen stabilizers only protect nitrogen from leaching. True or false? Well, that'd be false if you said all of them. And there's certain tools, you know, select the right tool for the right job. And some nitrogen stabilizers actually uh, inhibit the conversion from nitrate to nitrite in the soil. And uh, those stabilizers typically have nitropyrin in them. Now, there's been some newer modes of action onto the market in recent years. And don't confuse that with a nitropyrin. There's DCD. That's another mode of action. That one's pretty old. Nitropyrin tends to work a little bit better than that more consistently. But John, you maybe know more about some of the new modes of action for stabilizing soil nitrogen. Yeah, so there's some new modes of action. Part One of the new modes is, is stealing cations that activate those enzymes. Particularly, those are dealing with a different type of nitrogen loss called volatilization. So there's really two different types of real nitrogen loss that we can stop, and that would be volatilization and the leaching component. We also have the denitrification. But what we work with there on the nitrogen stabilizers and what I always coach guys to go towards if they're choosing a stabilizer is know what you're applying, what source of N are you applying it, and when are you applying, and then that would coach you to say, here's a stabilizer you need based on your application technique and product. Yeah, it's kind of like planning to dress for your day. You put a coat on when it's cold outside, you put shorts on when it's hot outside. You got to do the same thing for nitrogen applications. All right, John, this is going to be a good one for you. You seem to be a fan of this particular nutrient. I think if you... Is it zinc? It is. It is. All right, zinc question. Zinc is immobile in soil and tissue, so it's critical that plants have a constant supply throughout the season. True, false? Definitely true on that one, but I will back up and say you could probably spend so much money that you won't be farming next year to try to keep zinc sufficient in the tissue. So it's true that zinc always needs to be in that tissue, but we've boiled it down to try to pick key timings where we can know we can hit that hot button and get an increase to yield, particularly in the corn plant, but in other crops as well, we can start to define that zinc uptake zone. You know, John, I've been to some farm auctions before. I never once heard them say it's because he applied too much zinc. I've heard him say he's retiring. I've heard him say a lot of other things, but I've never heard him say, you know, this guy's having his auction. He spent too much on zinc. Well, I've also heard you say in the field, I could lick this corn leaf and tell you that it was 80% deficient in zinc or not. So, so we know maybe the reason why you haven't lost a farm is because you bought too much zinc, but we do know that most of the time we are deficient in zinc. So I always look back and in corn, my sweet spot is going to be after that V5 time framing. And not just because I think it tank mixes well with other products. That's not really what we're targeting there. But really from V5 to V8 is what's determining those how big that ear is going to be in girth. And that's what zinc is affecting because it's the forklift that brings all the other nutrients into the plant. So getting zinc right is going to allow you to bring all your nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur in so you can make yield at the end of the day. I got permission to ask another one. (laughs) And this one is going to be a good one for Joel because I'm interested on his take on this. So this is biostimulants and plant growth regulators are the same thing and can be used interchangeably. True or false? I feel like this is the, the professor asking the student on this one. So biostimulants and plant growth regulators. You know, plant growth regulators is a registered class where you actually have to prove what you're doing is actually inside that particular compound. So I think, you know, one of them is, is there's a registrant part to that biostimulant. But, you know, again, this goes back to using the right tool for the right job, that certain growth regulators might be synthetic versions of that. Biostimulants might also be naturally derived or plant extracts as I think about that. So I would say, I don't know, false? 
<laughs> so false question mark. So so here's the way I think. I mean, and that is a great question because that's really the debate. What is the definition of a biostimulant, a biological, a plant growth regulator? Or are they all the same thing? Well, a lot of times each one of those could fall under a PGR. A PGR to me is somewhat, a plant growth regulator is encompassing because it could be a specific hormone. We know there's five categories of PGRs, plant growth regulators, but isn't it true that a biostimulate could also create hormones that could function as a PGR? So, I mean, a lot of times I think that's kind of a, like you said, a maybe, true, false, um, but really the definition is still being worked. What I would say is make sure that the product that you're looking at, whether it's a PGR, biostimulant, or biological, has the data behind it. And I'm not just saying the data, but make sure it has the data behind it that allows you to say, does this make agronomic sense? Am I applying it at the right time? Is that data with the crop that I care about? And can I really see the differences that it's making or the value that it's bringing? Because most of the time we'll get some potato data to say, hey, this product works great on potatoes. Let's put it in our corn and furrow or let's put it on our soybeans at R2. And you go, well, let's make sure that we're making agronomic sense and that we have the real data to test what that product is actually doing. Certainly a lot of action around the, the biologicals and uh, biostimulant space. I, I know basic manufacturers have all invested their dollars into some form or fashion of that. So I, I think for the foreseeable future here, there's going to continue to be a need to experiment with that on the farm and to be able to document what the attributable improvements in yield or stress mitigation are as those things come forward. So. The other thing that brings up, you brought up the registration piece or the trying to get improved product quality control. Well, we know if that product is EPA registered, we know that it's consistent. It does have good quality control. With this market and everybody and their mother seeming to wanting to be participating in, a lot of the time you could go home and put water in your cowboy boot, dump it in a jug and call it you know, Joel's Biostimulant 101, right? And and that's a lot of what we might run into. So going back to making sure you have the data and the positioning story is pretty critical to before you start spending money on those I things. could about imagine you having some amino acid-derived cowboy boot formula coming off the ranch in Hayfield, John. Hey, I'll tell you what it is if you can guess my favorite amino acid. I don't know. I bet you it probably smells like shoe. <laughs> Give uh, me the next question, Joel. Uh, all you? right. All right. Let's see. John, uh, this one might be a layup for you. Uh, zinc and phosphorus. Jeez, it's, it, we're randomly drawing these questions and the zinc ones are drawn to you. So zinc and phosphorus, true, false, have antagonistic effects in the soil. True or false? Against each other or against... Uh, do zinc, you have like a couple... Of, there's no qualifier here. Okay. Zinc and phosphorus have antagonistic effects in the soil. So I guess I'm going to say true because, yeah, they are antagonistic in the soil. They bind each other and they form a product called zinc phosphate, which is a precipitate. It's white. And uh, what happens when you form zinc phosphate is it's completely insoluble and really exists in the soil. It's going to show up in your soil test, but it doesn't mean it's plant available. So typically when we see that antagonistic effect, though, isn't necessarily in the soil. Typically that happens in the starter tank. So we could see it in the soil if you have really high testing phosphorus. And if that's the case, we always would recommend zinc in the starter that's fully chelated. But particularly I have that conversation with chelated zincs when we're using orthophosphates, any of our other designer starters, and even some cases, some old polyphosphates that have maybe sitting around for a little while. Yeah, those polyphosphates in the wintertime, if it's been a warm winter, tend to convert towards more ortho. And that's what allows that zinc to be chelated 
chelated in there. Of course, this is probably a problem for you if you're the skinniest person and you can fit through the manhole cover to go down to the bottom of that tank and clean out the precipitate. Now, John, I've been on the farm before where, you know, you see this crust has formed on the top of a starter tank. Typically, you know, to add injury to insult, it's when you filled up the planter and then got a seven-day rain delay. What are the things that you'd recommend I do or not do to reduce the amount of zinc phosphate formation in my starter tanks? Well, number one, if you could remember four letters that go along with zinc, EDTA. Okay, there's different chelators for different micronutrients. The one chelator that you need with zinc is EDTA. Okay, and what I always tell guys is if you think you got a deal on your infero zinc, like you got a good price, hey, I got a deal on this, you probably, that's the one nutrient you didn't spend enough money on because making sure, especially if you're going to have it sit around, you're going to have a rain delay, something like that, the more EDTA and fully chelated product we're talking about is going to be better here for zinc. So that would be step number one. Make sure you have zinc EDTA. The other thing is make sure you got consistent agitation. Or, you know, make sure that you have movement of that product. Don't just let it settle out and sit. There are some products that we can use to bring it back into solution, but desperate times call for desperate measures and there's no guarantees after that. So really don't leave product in your tank or just get a high-speed planter drill so you can just, when you see rain coming, you just finish out your tank and be done. It's like NASCAR, drive fast, turn left. Yes, left. Yeah, I, you know, you should also start this compendium of things that you shouldn't get a good deal on. You're probably going to get the short end of the stick. So I'm thinking like every time I bought cheap beer, cheap beer is probably something you shouldn't get a discount on. What are some other things you shouldn't get a discount on, John? Well, before that, what's your cheap beer of choice? I mean, I'm just <laughs> curious, like, is that a, like, how you know, do you explore cheap beer? I like all beers, corn syrup, rice. <laughs> I support anything that goes into the beer that a farmer has produced. Let me be clear in that statement. But, you know, if I had to have a cheap beer, hmm, maybe a bush light. Uh-huh. Bush light. That's not even a cheap beer, Joel. Sorry, I got it. <laughs> like, I'm talking like Natty Ice or something like okay, that. Okay, okay. Uh, so one thing that I would add, things that you can't get a deal on, for me, it'd be sunglasses, right? Can never get a deal on sunglasses. If you feel like you got a deal on sunglasses, they're going to scratch, your eyes are going to hurt at the end of the day. And if you were blind until you were 18, it probably makes a big difference. But huh. we probably shouldn't put that on the podcast. <laughs> All right. You want to ask a question? Okay, so... Here's a question for you, Joel. It's sufficient to tissue sample fields every two years, true or false? Well, I guess I'm going to say true to that with a curveball based on, you're probably in a rotation, yep. corn, soybeans, and you probably are going to tissue sample for corn on that field once every two years. Now, the crux of the question is you should tissue sample the crop that's in that field seasonally. And sometimes it even helps to get a sample one, two, or three times. Now, the main sampling timeframes that I would recommend are at knee-high timeframe, right about that V5, helps us get an analysis of what the plant might be hungry for there. Take another one at waist-high, somewhere around V10, and then another one just after tassel, when the silks start coming out of the ear at that R1 phase. And that really gets us some assessments, especially if you're in irrigation country where you can put a little nitrogen over the top through the pivot. Tissue sampling at that tassel time frame can help you assess what that is. By the way, John, you can actually take that tissue sample, and we've built a crop model called Field Forecasting Tool that you can use the tissue sample to ground truth and calibrate specifically to that field what the nutrient demands for nitrogen, potassium, and water might be for corn, soybeans, and wheat. The other thing that I think to add to that is the interesting part about your timings 
knee high, waist high, right after tassel is if you think about the king of the mountain theory with corn, remember the lead leaf or the the newest collared leaf going up the plant is the one that's dictating really what the rest of the plant is doing, whether it's deficient or adequate, responsive in the nutrient. Well, when you get to tassel, all of a sudden, all your leaves are out of the plant, right? So now your king of the mountain is no longer on the top. Your king of the mountain leaf is the ear leaf. And that's what we're sampling at that VTR1 timeframe right after that tassel. And I think when you go back to the field forecasting tool and you calibrate on that timeframe, that's probably the most critical timeframe because that's when we're switching to putting up all vegetative growth and then figuring out what's going into reproduction. So really those three time points are critical, but the interesting part is we follow king of the mountain all the way up and then we're going back to that ear leaf because that's what's feeding the yield. Yeah, and not to be a complete data model nerd on that, but actually when we build for field forecasting tool, because it's a mechanistic model, we're taking into account the leaf area index at each of those stages. And, you know, what you just described in the nutrient hierarchy that follows King of the Mountain, we're recalibrating every step of the way, and we can actually fine-tune that model based on that. Versus a statistic model wouldn't quite allow us to figure out where our calibrations are off. Wait, so mechanical and leaf area index made me think that you actually had somebody physically out in the field taking measurements of the corn plant at different growing stages? I know. I find that work to be best done by interns. After you take your first two or three uh, tassel tissue samples, you kind of go, I got to find somebody maybe a little younger for this. Yeah, and make sure the wind's not blowing too hard that day too. Right. All right, John. Uh, true, false, and this goes back to your uh, your favorite rotational crop. Even though soybeans fix their own nitrogen, they can still suffer from a nitrogen deficiency and may need supplemental nitrogen. True or false? True on that one. The hard part is, in my opinion, they're always going to need supplemental nitrogen, but when do you add it? And when do you know if they need supplemental nitrogen or not? Most of the time, at least in our growing environment, I would say that soybeans basically have full yield potential and they can support themselves up until that 65 bushel yield environment, 60, 65. And then after that, something magical happens. Well, about the time that you should think about putting nitrogen on your soybeans, you're going to have to say, is this a 65 bushel yield environment or is it not? Okay, well, if you guessed wrong and it's not a 65 bushel yield environment, you just maybe spent 20 bucks an acre on something that you didn't need. And if you guessed right, you might get a response or Mother Nature just might make it rain for two weeks in August and you'll get mineralization and have all the nitrogen you need. So we've really been chasing that nitrogen conversation in soybeans. But what we do know in high yield environments, certainly it cannot produce the amount of nitrogen it needs to put to fill all those pods. Yeah. So what's your answer to that? Do you double inoculate the soybeans? Can you take a tissue test for it? How would you go about managing that? So I'd probably start with looking at some history of where you're going through that spot, combining and saying, hey, these are 75, 85, 100 bushel yield environments that we see flashing up on the combine. Managing those areas or picking some check strips. In today's variable rate technology, we can start to learn some stuff in those areas. There's some crazy things out there. Like uh, I've got some guys that, and there's some actually some research on this, trying to do some foliar application of inoculant. So trying to inoculate foliarly, meaning you start that rhizobia in the soil to help fix that nitrogen. But really, I think the the realistic egg production acre is probably going to go to a broadcast application. And if you're doing that, 
nitrogen and sulfur got to go together. So if you just think you're going to go out and broadcast nitrogen, probably wrong. I would always pair sulfur with it. Then maybe once in a while, put some potassium in because we know that there's relationships of potassium bringing nitrogen and sulfur into the plant. That makes sense. If you're going to make protein, you need nitrogen and sulfur and potassium helps it get into the plant. So that's the backbone of amino acids. And somehow we're still back to this. Are you going to guess my favorite amino acid or not? Does it? I don't even know. I can't even name one amino acid, John. Name one. Yes, you can. I've heard you talk about tryptophan all the time. That, you, you eat turkey at Thanksgiving. That makes me tired. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that one for another episode. Is there something else you'd like to hear on the Deal with Yield? Let us know. Visit dealwithyield.com backslash survey, any of the Winfield United social channels or newsletters to find a link to the listener survey. If you take the survey, you will be entered to win an Amazon gift card. You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast. For more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and dealwithyield.com. 